0: Well, thanks again for being at Grace. Uh, we, we have this uh, big event coming up next time, uh, uh, next Saturday, this coming Saturday. And, and in re- regards to that, guess what I got to do yesterday? Skin a buffalo. Yeah, I got to skin a buffalo with some of the guys. So, hey, we have an entire buffalo that will be consumed as just part of the meat uh, that we have this Saturday for Beast Feast. And so, guys, invite, invite some other men, uh, grab a couple of tickets to that, and come. Um, we, we really want, want you to use that as a tool to, to take that step in reaching, guys, for, for Christ. So, we're excited about that. We, we were in a, Our last series was, had everything to do with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. This explains everything. And then last week we started the next series, which really continues through Genesis, called Epic. And Epic is going to take us all through the Old Testament and leading up to the coming of Christ. And so we're doing this just so everybody kind of has a better grasp on how all the Bible fits together. Last week we ended with uh, Genesis chapter 9 the earth had been flooded and then Noah uh, starts off with his three sons Japheth Ham and Shem and they're told to go into the world and multiply and uh, and fill the world but but they didn't their offspring didn't do that people stayed in the area and actually Uh, Shortly thereafter, the people who were on the earth decided to unite in their opposition to what God had told them to do and build a great tower, a ziggurat, if you will. And they started doing that. And when God saw them doing that, he, he wanted to stop them. And he did it in kind of a unique way. At that time in the world, there was only one language. God came and He confused their languages, where people couldn't stand each other, all hap- couldn't understand each other. Did I say people couldn't stand each other? People could. Yeah, they couldn't do that either. But people couldn't understand each other, and uh, and so they started then separating into different people groups, and then they did go out and start filling the earth. So that's uh, that's what happened in. After Genesis 9, that's Genesis 10 and 11 that happens. And then in Genesis chapter 12, there's a shift in the Bible that carries through to the rest of the Old Testament. And that is before Genesis 12, the, the, the scope has been universal, the whole world. But now in Genesis 12, God narrows down the focus to one man... And then after that, one family, one nation that leads up to the coming of Christ in fulfillment of what we learned about back in Genesis chapter 3, two weeks ago in the last series. And that one man is Abraham. God comes to Abraham, who is from the line of Shem, And God tells Abraham, I want you to pack up and leave everything you know, everybody you know, your culture, um, everything, and go to a land that I'll show you. And that's what Abraham does. He packs up, he takes his wife and his nephew, and he heads to this land that he doesn't even know where it's at, which is turns out that it's Canaan, which is Palestine or modern day Israel. And, uh, and he goes, when he gets there, God promises him that he will have an heir through Sarah and that not only will God bless Abraham because Abraham believed, but that God would bless the whole world through this line, this heir of Abraham. And so God says, Okay, and then, but what happened is uh, God uh, didn't do that right away, and eventually Abraham and Sarah got much older, and it wasn't happening. So Sarah came up with a plan for Abraham to sleep with her handmaiden, her, her servant, and he does that, and there is a son born named Ishmael. Ishmael, by the way, is is sort of the the father of all the Arabic peoples. And so Ishmael is born, but God says, no, don't take matters into your own hand. I said I was going to do that, and and I'm going to do it through Sarah, and they say okay. And then Sarah is beyond childbearing years. As a matter of fact, when Abraham is 100 years old, Sarah then gives birth to Isaac, the child of promise. And Isaac means laughter. I mean, I, thought, I think they thought this was pretty funny. I mean, think about it. Abraham has his 100th birthday party, and they bring diapers. You know, hey, you know, he, he has a son. And, and, that's, and then, as the story continues, we come to the most significant event in Abraham's life. And we pick that up in Genesis chapter 22. There's a lot of Abraham there from chapter 12 to chapter 22. And I want to pick it up there in verse 1. And and just to set the context here, Isaac is with them. Isaac's about 15 years old. And obviously Isaac's, you know, super important to, to Abraham and Sarah. And here's what it says. And now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and, and laid it on Isaac's son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, "I will provide, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together, and then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son and Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord it will be provided so you have this amazing profound yet horrendous story that that we read and it just makes us cringe right I mean, it's just heart-rending, and as, as we look through this and kind of decipher what's going on, we realize that um, the way for us to get at what it means, and, and by the way, non-believers look at this, and they're saying, is is that what it means to follow God, that you would have to do something like that or be willing to do something like that? Is that what it means to be a Christian? But I think there's some, some layers that we need to understand to, to understand fully what's happening here. And, and so the three layers that I want us to see this story through, like lenses, is, is this. First, it's the question. Second is the debt, and third, is the solution. And the question is simple. The question is, is God your God or is God your servant? You see, that's a struggle that that we have always had. Is God our God or is God our servant? Some of you have seen this before, this a bike wheel and I use this to illustrate that this is the human life. This is our life. And then all these spokes represent different things in our life that are kind of connected to who we are and what we do and what's important to us. And then there's always one thing in the center of our life, in the hub of our life. And and the only, the only person or the only thing that should be here is God. God should be here. And anytime we put anything else here, then it will cause us problems. And if it's a person, it will will hurt our relationships because no thing or no one can bear up under the weight of putting that thing or person in the very center of our life. And so we ask the question is, is God your God, or is God your servant? I mean, if you think about that, I, sometimes, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a dog lover, but I don't have a dog right now, but I've never done this. I see people walking their dogs with little bags, and I've never actually had to do that. I, I don't know why. I guess I was never in a place where I had to worry about that. But, but I always wonder, if, if an alien from another planet came and watched that, the dog and the person walking along and the dog leading the way and then if the dog you know has to do business the person i wonder what the alien say who's in charge here you know I, I think the alien might think it's the dog that's in charge and the servant is following along cleaning up the mess is god your god or is god your servant is what we need to answer in our lives are we serving god for God or are we serving God for what we think we can get out of God? What can God do for us? And we've already learned in Genesis a few weeks ago that that the common issue we all have as human beings is we want to call the shots. We want to decide what's right and wrong for our lives and And in a sense, in that way, we are usurping God's position in our life. We're taking God's place. We're becoming our own God in that area when we're deciding what's right and wrong rather than leaning on what God says is right and wrong. And so here, all through this story, God challenges Abraham, right? He says, Abraham, I want you to go to a land. And Abraham says, where? And God says, I'll let you know. And Abraham says, okay. And and they go. And then God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And I'm going to bless not only you. You're going to be blessed, but I'm going to bless the whole world. You're going to become nations through that son. And Abraham says, when? And God says, I'll let you know. And Abraham says, okay. And then... Amazingly, and it just freaks us out because our children are so precious to us. God says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice yourself, the child of promise, the one that I told you all this would happen through. And Abraham's thinking, well, how can you keep your promise and me do this horrendous thing you're asking me do? How do those fit together? And God says, trust me. And Abraham does. And so that's the question. And Abraham, over and over, we're told, believed God. Abraham trusted God. And he has this son. And, and I don't know, maybe God saw that, that Isaac was, was inching closer to the hub of his life. I, I don't know. But then, God asked Abraham to do this just amazingly difficult thing. And, and I think God's trying to fix something there. And, and to understand that, you have to go to the second layer. And the second layer is to understand the debt. And, and that's really, to, the question is, God, or are God, you serving God for God, or are you serving God for you? But the question we have is, why? Why would God do this? Why would God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son? And there's two reasons that come out. One, we just addressed to answer the question of, why are you serving God? Is God your God, or is God just your servant to get whatever you want? Is God your God, or do you only follow God so he can help you get whatever is in the center of your life? But the other reason is because there is a debt to pay. And this is what we miss, and we don't understand, but I think Abraham very much understood this, that that's all about the sacrifice. And how do I know? Because God didn't ask Abraham to murder his son. He asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, and that, to us, that doesn't sound a whole lot different, But to Abraham, that's a world of difference. Sacrifice, that meant something to Abraham that I think it's easy for us to miss that that we don't at first realize. And it all has to do with this, once in a while we mentioned this law of uh, primogeniture, which is this weird concept in the Old Testament that basically said that the oldest son was sort of represented the family and god said that you know remember in the old testament like the oldest son got the double inheritance the oldest son became the head of the family the oldest son sort of controlled things and we asked well you know a lot of us are thinking well especially if you're not an older son you're thinking well that doesn't seem fair what what's up with that and really it's all about the land and i'll give you an example my grandfather Um, sold the homestead that he homesteaded in western Kansas. And when he did that, he kept the mineral rights which at the time were worth like nothing but he sold the land out west, that's kind of common, and he kept the mineral rights well it turns out that they turned out to be worth something. He actually, he had some brothers, but he shared that with one of his brothers and so all of a sudden they start digging oil wells, and this is around liberal Kansas, and they start pulling off oil or natural gas, I'm not sure, off of of that, from underneath that land, even though the well's not there, they know they're pulling that. And so all of a sudden there's royalties. Well, then these guys have the royalties, but then their kids get the royalties, the next generation. So it's not just two people, the next generation, it's like 12 people. And now that generation is passing. And then there's going to be like 50 or 60 people. Now here's what happens. Even at 12 people, it's very complicated because each person that owns a share of those mineral rights that's being paid for by an oil company, they have to pay Kansas taxes, even though they don't live in Kansas, because that money's coming there. And not only that, they have to have a Kansas lawyer to represent them. Can't have a lawyer from any else in the United States. You have to have a lawyer that's based in Kansas to do all this stuff for you, and it's really complicated. But as we go to another generation, and there's 50 or 60 people that this is divided, I can just tell you what's going to happen. The money, which is not much, will not be worth the hassle. The money won't be worth the hassle of looking up a lawyer, let alone paying for a lawyer, and then filing taxes and doing all the paperwork. So it's just going to kind of disintegrate. So in Israel, as God gave his people this land, he made this law of primogenitor. Part of that was to protect the land from just being so scattered and separated that you couldn't do anything with it. It's, that's exactly what was going on there. But it wasn't just that. It was also recognizing God as he lays out in the Old Testament that the firstborn sort of belonged to God as a debt for the families sin against God. And so when the law comes, the law hasn't happened yet. It's the firstborn of the flock, the firstborn, you know, of every sheep, the firstborn, the first fruits of of whatever you're growing, you know, and that all was kind of, and then the first tenth of anything you got. I mean, all that was connected, and all that was to say there's a debt that you owe to God, and here is how you pay that debt. God owns the firstborn, and that included the firstborn son, which was the head of the family, but God never sanctioned human sacrifice. Unlike this story that we're looking at that's making us wonder about that, God forbade all human sacrifice. His intention was to teach us that there's a debt that has to be paid, and then in the law, even though there was the debt, the firstborn son was forfeit, there was a way in the law that you would substitute your son for an animal, depending on how much money you have, what that animal would be, and so then that's the way you paid the debt was a substitute for your son, but it was to remind people, we owe this amazing, huge debt, way more than a lamb. The lamb's just representing that the debt we owe is really a human debt, firstborn son. It, it, and that sacrifice that represented the firstborn son and the firstborn son then represented the entire family, so that sort of made that took care of that debt temporarily for that entire family, and Abraham understood that. And so God's not telling Abraham to murder his son, he's telling Abraham to sacrifice his son, and that deeper thing is going on. Abraham understands that God is calling in a rightful debt that Abraham knows he owes God. And that this debt was really not just for Abraham's for his whole family. And so that's what's happening. And, and when you get to verse 2 and you hear what God asks, in the Hebrew, Hebrew scholars would tell you it's in this text, everything slows down uh, grammatically. It's like a verse 2. And he said, take now your son, period, your only son, boom, whom you love, it just all slows way down as the impact of what God is saying lands on Abraham, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him, and it just, it's all landing on him, and then, and, and so you know, Abraham is just crushed, he's wiped out, right, he, he's He's been asked by God to do the unthinkable. He understands he has a debt. He understands where the justice is in all of that. But it's like, it's heart-rending. And so, no doubt, he spends a sleepless night talking to God, trying to figure this out, praying, and then he gets up in the morning, and he starts obeying God. He saddles up, he takes a couple of guys, they take some wood, and they head out, like a a three-day journey, Mount Moriah. And then when it comes into view, you guys stay here, and Isaac carries the wood, and I've got the knife, and I've got the fire, and then we head up. And so they start heading up. And then Isaac asks, My father, very uniquely how that's done, and actually in the Hebrew, that becomes an idiom in the New Testament that is Abba, father. It's daddy is what that becomes. He says, my father, whoa, I got the wood. You've got the knife. You've got the fire. Where's the lamb? And and Abraham's response lets us know that he was pondering this for the last 24 hours, because he actually has a response to that, and what's he say? God will provide. God will provide. God will provide. And Abraham is just hanging on to that. I don't know how it's going to happen, but god that's what he's thinking. God will provide. And then they get there. And Abraham starts to do the unthinkable, ties his son's hands and feet, lays out the wood, puts his son on the wood, raises his knife. And through the angel of the Lord, God says, Abraham, Abraham, don't stop. He's saying, stop. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Now I know. Now I know. And then provides a a substitute, right? Then Abraham looks and there's all this. The ram caught in some bushes. How? By its horns. Even that's significant. Why? It's caught there by its horns. Because the ram has to be unblemished. The ram has to be perfect. So it can only be caught. If it's caught by anything else, it'd be tearing itself up. It's caught by its horns. Abraham offers this perfect lamb and recognizes that this lamb is a substitute for his son. This is not a test of Abraham's willpower. It's Abraham obeying God and all the way up there he's thinking, I I don't understand how God's going to do this. Isaac is the son of promise. He's the one, the one. God said, Nations will come from, the world will be blessed. He's it. But I owe a debt that has to be paid. But Isaac is the one. God said he's the one. But I owe a debt that has to be paid and God is calling in this debt and he's walking up and he's trying to reconcile these two truths and he doesn't understand how it's going to happen. How is God going to fulfill his promise to me of an heir through Isaac and how will I pay the debt that I owe God? Hebrews 11 in the New Testament tells us that that Abraham was thinking as he was doing that, the only solution he could think of, and that is God must be going to raise Isaac from the dead. He had never heard of that. He had never seen that. He, of course, he thought that was impossible, but Hebrews tells us he was thinking, well, I guess I'm gonna, we're going to do all this, and somehow Isaac's coming back. Somehow that, because both of these things have to be true and then that brings us to the third layer, which is the solution. How's there gonna be justice and grace? And the answer, God provides. This all happens, by the way, 4,000 years ago on a Mount Moriah, A little bit after that, a settlement was there. And generations later, that settlement came to be known as Jerusalem. And 2,000 years after Abraham, there was another father and another son and another sacrifice. And God... Sent his son Jesus to be the sacrifice. And God laid on Jesus the son, the wood, the crossbeam of the cross as Jesus walked up that hill. And when he got to the top, he was laid down on wood and then lifted up as he was being crucified. For us, but this time the Father's hand was not stayed. And the Son died. And there was no substitute for Him because He was the substitute for all of us. When Jesus began His public ministry, John the Baptist was at the Jordan and he saw Jesus at a distance and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And he might as well have said, behold, the Lamb of sacrifice, behold, the sacrifice of God. And then at the end of Jesus' ministry, he rode into Jerusalem The last week, we call it Palm Sunday, knowing that there was a promise and there was a debt that had to be paid. And he willingly went there to the cross to fulfill that promise and pay that debt. That's what the whole Bible is all about. The Bible is not a series of unrelated and random stories. The Bible records God's story through time. God's working through all of us. And the whole Old Testament is pointing to this most central event in all of human history that Jesus Christ, the God-man, would be offered up as the once and for all permanent sacrifice for our sins to make a way, to make it possible for sinful human beings to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. And then the rest of the New Testament after that point is all pointing back to the gospel just like we do now. Old Testament pointing forward, New Testament pointing back, us pointing back. And that's the message that we're to share with the world. That's why we exist, part of the reason we exist as a church here at Grace It's why we do what we do. It's why, it's why we do things the way we do. It's why we have beast feast. It's not just so Kevin can skin a buffalo. It's not just so a bunch of men in our church can eat a bunch of exotic meat. Although that's great. Both of those things. It's because we have a message that God has told us to proclaim. And so it's our duty to go out and share with others the gospel, this good news, this what God has done for us. And, and some people kind of struggle with that. And we, in one of our classes, teach people how to do this. But, but we're just doing Beast Feasts as a tool for men that they can invite other men. That's the whole purpose, that we would invite other men that we know that don't go to a Bible-teaching church and bring them in just one step closer to coming to grace and hearing the message. And then when they come on Saturday, we're going to give them a reason to come back the next day, third service. And then when they come back, we're going to share the gospel with them. And through that whole process, we're going to be nice to them. We're we're going to roll out the carpet for them. They're going to realize that this is all for them in hopes that they will either respond to the gospel or come back to hear more about God's truth. And it all fits together. That's what we're doing that's why we're doing it, because we're trying to bring people to a point, a decision, the most important decision that they'll ever make in their life. And so in order to make for you here, you know, what about that question? Are you serving God for God or are you serving God for you? Is God your God or is God your servant? Is God in the center or is God somewhere else and you only acknowledge him to help him so that he will help you solidify what's ever in the center. But whatever's in the center besides God cannot hold up there, it cannot work. That's why so many people become Christians in crisis. Because that center is, is shaken. Either it's, it's taken away or it's threatened or uh, it, it rusts or they lose it or whatever. And all of a sudden they're in crisis and it's like they realize, oh, something stronger, something more permanent, something more stable has got to be in the center of my life. That can only be God. And it's true, God's the only person that's designed to be there. We are designed with a soul and God, we're designed that God would fill the center of our lives and anything else will just lead us to disaster and so the question is for you is God your God or is God your servant because we must understand we owe a debt to God because he's given us our life and he's given us freedom, and he tells us what right and wrong is, and we've taken that and we said, all will decide. We owe God a debt because God is just, and in, if God, all-powerful, sovereign God is truly just, then sin, wrong, has to be punished. Without that, there is no justice. We owe a debt, and then secondly, Christ is our substitute. At great cost, God makes a substitute for us. He allows his one and only Son who existed with him as Trinity eternally. Somehow that that's changed, and Jesus comes, clothed himself in human flesh, and dies like a human being suffering for our Debt, to pay our debt. We have a debt and we have a substitute. And the way that the substitute becomes a substitute for our sin is when we respond with belief like Abraham did. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness by faith, by trusting in Christ and Christ alone, by realizing that We don't add to our salvation. We can't earn our salvation anyway. There's no good deeds that we can do that will erase one sin in our life that it has to come from outside of us. And God made a way and he offers us relationship, but we have to respond in faith, trust, and belief. And it's easy to just say, okay, I'm in, but we know we're sincere when we actually follow him with our life, when, when God comes into our life and, and our faith shows up in the way we live. If that's not happened for you or if you've never made that decision, we'd love to talk to you at the end of this service about the most important decision in room one. If you have a few minutes to talk, we'd love to talk to you. If you don't have any time, we'd love to give you something that you can read through on your own time. But you owe debt, and Christ has paid it for you as your substitute, and God is asking you to respond. God is not whoever we want him to be. God is God. He's revealed himself, and he's telling us we can only come to him on his terms. That's the only way possible. Let's stand together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. And Lord, we pray, first of all, that if there's anyone here that are not that they're just a little unsettled and they're not really sure if they've made you their God and not just their servant. God, we pray that your spirit would convict our hearts about that. And Father, we pray that If anyone is in that position here today, that they would respond to you in faith by admitting their sin and trusting in Christ and wanting to follow you with your help. And Father, for the rest of us, that we would be serious about the message because life is short we don't have forever we just have a limited time to impact people and they have a limited time on this earth and God we pray that you'd help us to make an impact for you that you would be glorified that people would be saved Lord that's the the call the responsibility that you've given us help us to be faithful to that thanks for loving us Thanks for your unspeakable sacrifice on our behalf. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Look forward to seeing you next week as we continue in Epic.